put the over under on Harley race speeding tickets at 37.5. And I want to ask Jake and Nick, what do you think? The over under 37.5 speeding tickets for Harley races life. Life? Life. Oh, for sure over. Yeah. Like for sure because just hearing stories like Rick Flair, he said he would get a speeding ticket to like crumple up and throw over his shoulder. <laughs> and then before they had like this agreement across the country where like if you got a speeding ticket in Missouri, it counted to you in North Carolina. Like if you got three tickets, yeah, it would be the equivalent because of your insurance and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, so like there's probably so many middle of nowhere towns in Louisiana. You just pull it up. It's got it's got to be like in the hundreds, hundreds, I'd say. I'm going to go under. Yeah. Any cop who pulled Harley race over thought twice before riding Harley fucking race a ticket. <laughs> yeah. That was my thought, too. I was like, there's so many times where Harley just stared at him and the cop went, okay, sir, sorry. Excuse me, sir. Do you know how fast you were going? As fast as I goddamn want it to. <laughs> or 139 miles per hour. I told that motherfucker <laughs> that I was only going 55 miles per hour and then he let me go (laughs) (laughs) that sounds about right i think we're both right all right welcome to 10 bell pod for over 50 years the revolutionary force in sports entertainment i'm nick alexander and i believe vince russo supporters are the flat earthers of pro wrestling Across the country, in the Manning Cave, getting the job guy entrance, Michael Loving. I think that's an insult to flat earthers. And job guys as well, so (laughs) just throw that in there. And in the opposite corner, from Jackson County, Iowa, fighting at a Troop 83, weighing in at a slightly kayfabe 215 pounds, he is the excellence of tensecution, the extreme camping machine, the man scout jake manning once again you have better intros and better taglines than i have ever come up with in my entire career also too little concern you know where jackson county iowa is is there some sort of like online database that says that now i, I don't know how you find that out google man well that's yeah. that's scary so and i feel like you kind of blew your wad oh, those, those were so good i feel like you could have like got three out of that intro i know sometimes <laughs> i'm like should i save these for future episodes that's right. good you got to overwhelm people sometimes well that's good because i'm i'm coming up with new shirt design so you might see a pink and black excellence of tent ex- execution so. and it's recorded so you got proof for like a lawsuit if you want to try to come to jake's money <laughs> So today we are talking about one of the toughest men to ever live, eight-time NWA world champion. He was the greatest wrestler on the face of God's green earth. And since earth is mostly blue, I'm assuming he's from a green earth from a different galaxy, narrowly escaping a sure death as his planet was being destroyed by Kevin Sullivan. He was sent here on a rocket ship to be found by farmers on our planet and grew up to become the Superman, Harley Race. One of the best quotes to sum up Harley that I found was like, if I hit someone with my left and he was still standing, I used to round around the, to the back of him to see who was holding him up. <laughs> Harley is credited as the inventor of the diving headbutt. He is the self-proclaimed one of, if not the first person to go through a table in pro wrestling. What was it about guys from this era, specifically in the 60s and 70s, that made them feel the need to expose the business with pointless high spots? Well, no, it's funny is I I found this out like shortly after Harley passed away that Carl Gotch 
referred to Harley Race as a spot monkey. <laughs> yeah, I heard that. <laughs> and, like, Rob Van Dam, Sabu, Harley Race. <laughs> which, thinking about where we're at right now and people is talking about all these spots and, and Young Bucks and, and the next generation of guys, it's just like, yeah, we've always done this. Yeah. The guy that does more in the ring is just referred to as a spot monkey, and then that generation of people that saw them and loved them are like, no, 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 this is old school. Like, I'm waiting to meet that kid when I'm like in, in my 70s and 80s, that's like, man, I just love that old school wrestling. You know the way that wrestling used to be back when the Young Bucks used to super kick people 18 <laughs> times in a match. Like, I'm waiting for that day just so I could get the biggest laugh of all time. <laughs> um, also, too, with, with the, the headbutt, like coming up with the diving headbutt, years later, Harley actually said that he regretted coming up with that. Yeah. Because of all the damage it did to his body, Dynamite Kid's body. And yeah. as a guy that used to do it as an homage to both of those guys, <laughs> it will fuck you up. Like, I would, I used to do it on a regular basis a couple of times. Top rope. Top rope. And, and standing. Yeah, and usually, what, and I would either hit it or not hit it. And I would, then I'd go through periods where I wouldn't use it because I would start to get a pinched nerve in the middle of my back because yeah. it would jack you up in, in, a, in a certain way just depending on how you hit it and right. the way that you, how believable you want to make it look. I mean, you could just take a nice big belly flop or if you want to make it look like your head's hitting, that's where you're going to get that issues. But I would stop doing it as soon as I'd start getting a pain in my back. And now, since I don't bump anymore, I don't do it at all. So, <laughs> like, I'll do, I'll do a standing one, but I ain't coming off the top rope anymore anytime soon. And much like the WWE, Jake did not mention Chris in that discussion either. So there we go. What were we talking about? <laughs> what did I say? It's something. There was a That's all I heard. It's one of those heard. weird things we'll never fucking know. All right. Harley Leland Race was born April 11th, 1943 in Maryville, Missouri. Harley had one older brother, four younger sisters, all born to sharecroppers George and Mary Race. And also on this day, this is all right. This is this one's going to be for Nick. John Montague, British entrepreneur, politician, and nobleman, was also born. This is a terrible one, but his title. And I want you. Is this a good title for a cooking show that you would have? The Eleventh Earl of Sandwich. <laughs> that was his actual fucking title. It's, it's either the best or worst thing ever. Harley would overcome polio as a child. How are anti-vaxxers not using Harley Race as their Jesus? Like the, the baddest man to ever walk the face of the earth did not have his polio shots. I told that motherfucker, don't <laughs> stick me with that needle. I, I gotta, I gotta back off on these Harley impersonations. We got, we got, we got possibly two parts to go. We got two parts. I'll make this a three part just by doing Harley impersonations <laughs> that just start off with "I told that motherfucker." And this was, uh, as Nick said, this was God's first attempt at killing Harley, and he fucking failed. <laughs> Harley was kicked out of school at the age of 13. for He was in a fight with another boy, swung at the boy. The boy ducked, and when he did, Harley accidentally decked his principal. Okay, there's so many stories of this real quick. The one that I heard is that Harley was in a fight with a boy. The principal started kneeing him in the back of the head. And then Harley got pissed off, swung around, and punched and tacked the principal. Either way, Harley's a badass. I like the idea that he swung at his friend, his friend ducked out of the way, and he punched the principal. Because then that means that Harley Race got kicked out of school for the the most common <laughs> heel tag team spot of all time. 
<laughs> where he, it's too bad he didn't have a chair. Yeah, exactly. That, that's the only way it gets better than that. <laughs> that or he swings the chair at his friend, hits the top rope, and then the chair bounces oh. back and hits him in the face. That's the only way that it gets any better. The kid he was fighting, I hope he schoolboyed rolled him up after that while he was distracted. <laughs> totally. Not long after that, Harley's family would move to Iowa. That's where Jake's from. Uh, <laughs> out in Iowa, Harley was able to pick up the Chicago territory on the Dumont Television Network. And from that point on, Harley knew that all he ever wanted to do was become a pro wrestler. Harley began looking for training, and at the age of 15, he linked up with former world champions Stanislaus and Vladik Zabisco, who owned a farm in Missouri. Harley not only assisted on their farm, it was there he was also trained to wrestle, because on that farm they had a ring, E-I-E-I-O, and in that ring they took some bumps, E-I-E-I-O. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I'm God. Sorry. All right, okay. <laughs> But yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, when we were talking about Hayabusa and how they would work. They would have to go work their day job, and then right after that, you would just have to fucking train your ass off. But Harley's on a farm doing hardcore farm stuff and then probably getting stretched and beating the shit out of by two Zabiscos. I don't know what it is about, like, wrestlers when they just want to own a farm. And then, like, <laughs> I have a farm. Let's put a ring in it. Like, Vern Gagne, he put his, his ring in a barn. Uh, kind of. I think Jerry Jerry Jarrett would train on his farm. That's where Tommy Rich was trained. So if you're looking for wrestling training, don't look, don't Google schools. Just look for somebody with a farm. Chances are there might be a ring in there, especially in the 50s and 60s. About a year later, Harley would start working matches for St. Joseph promoter Gus Harris, and he'd also receive further training from Ray Gordon. A lot of Harley's early matches would either be at the fancy Chase Hotel or the polar opposite Small Town Carnivals. At the Chase Hotel, everyone dressed up really fancy. They ate fine dining as Harley went to war with people like Cowboy Bob Ellis, Dick the Bruiser, and Johnny Valentine. If you look at older footage, yeah. it's so weird <laughs> yeah. because everybody's in suits and they're like it's sitting surreal. at tables, it's almost so like a, almost like it's dinner theater. <laughs> yeah. like, it, it's almost like the Academy Awards, and they just put up a wrestling ring in there, and these guys came out in trunks and boots, no knee pads, with a towel around their neck, and then they wrestled. It's very weird to it, watch. It's surreal. There's so many good. Pic I haven't seen too much. Uh, there's actual video. There's a lot of video footage of this. I've I, seen mostly pictures. There's a couple of clips on our St. Louis wrestling collection mm. from that older footage. And it is very weird. There's like, like two or three matches on, on one of our releases for St. Louis wrestling that we got from Larry Matisic. And um, uh, yeah, it's fucking weird. <laughs> yep. As far as the carnival stuff, Harley described it as a combination of a wrestling show and a wrestling shoot with the carnival pulling challengers out of the crowd to fight. Sometimes these people would be plants. Sometimes Harley himself would be one of these plants. And sometimes they weren't. And on the off chance that some big old hoss with farmer strength caught you off guard and you lost, the promoter would pay him your booking fee. <laughs> Fuck. That's definitely where Harley's toughness just got honed, where he knew anything could be coming at him at any time, and he was having to go up against legitimate dudes, show off how legitimate he was, and he turned into the badass he became right there. Well, and also, too, when, when I met Harley back in 2005, 2006, you know, people always talk about Stu Hart being like, eh, let me, let, let, let me have you, kind of grabbing <laughs> you and shit like that. You know, like, the Stu's legendary like that, but Harley was a little bit like that, too. Like, if you spent just enough time with Harley, 
he'd be like, let me show you something. And I'll never forget this one shoot hold. It's a front face lock, but he, instead of like, you know, just grabbing it, just holding it like this, he would say, you know, grab your other forearm underneath here and it would turn the guy's face sideways and then push it up forward uh-huh. and he said if you hang on to that tight enough you can like knock a guy out immediately just the blood choke Jesus. yeah it's so, just out yeah i'll show it on michael later i'll do it for podcasts <laughs> I'll, I'll i'll put him to sleep in the middle of this podcast so well, it'll be all audio you'll just hear a big <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's just you and me nick for the rest of the show so <laughs> Working for Gus Karras would also lead to one of Harley's first regular jobs in pro wrestling when Harley would be asked to be the driver for the over 700-pound Happy Humphrey. 700 to 1,000 pounds, and then he ended up losing it later in life. Oh, he did? Yeah. Like, I missed that. Yeah, I guess he got down to 220 later in his later years. That wasn't with surgery or anything? Well, he had a surgery okay. for sure. That was, definitely, that was definitely with a surgery, but like we're talking, what, like maybe 70s surgery to do that? So I just, there should be more discussion about Happy Humphrey, to be really quite honest. The fact that the man was anywhere from 700 to 1,000 pounds and then like got down to 220 when he's like, yeah, I'm done wrestling. I'm done being this fat. I'm just going to get down to 220. Like, I for sure thought he was going to die of type 2 diabetes or something, but I didn't follow up on it. No, he lived to a, a very ripe old age, and there's like a there's a picture of him in Harley's documentary of him like in the pant leg of one of his old pants. Oh, fuck. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And yeah. it's insane. I thought it was remarkable that at one point in time I was almost 280 and then got down to 173 in less than a year. Damn. But fuck that. The fact that this guy was like 700 pounds to 1,000 pounds and got down to 220. Oof. And has been brought up on some other podcasts. Harley paid his dues by having to wash Humphrey's ass after every time he took a shit because he physically could not wipe his own ass. Squat goals. <laughs> this is a bad segue, but... And now we get to a brutal, heart-wrenching story about a horrible tragedy in Harley's life. Christmas Day, 1960, Harley was driving his pregnant wife, who he had been married to for just about a month, when an 18-wheeler moved into Harley's lane, more or less hitting Harley's car head-on. His wife, Vivian Louise Jones, was killed instantly, while Harley was left in shambles fighting for his own life. Harley's leg came close to being amputated. When Gus Harris heard this, he he raced to the hospital and stopped the amputation from going through. In doing so, he not only saved Harley's leg, he preserved one of the greatest careers in wrestling history. Just imagine the butterfly effect from removing Harley Race. 9-11 doesn't happen? I don't know. There's something... (laughs) (laughs) I was going to go a little bit more sensitive than that, but I was going to go over the fact of uh, just... It'll, it'll come up later in Harley's life how much respect Harley had for different promotions in the NWA, as, as we'll see later, the, the respect that the NWA community and all these promoters gave Harley and the amount of respect that Harley gave back. If Harley has a bad experience early on with a promoter, I don't think he does that. Oh, good point. So the fact that this one promoter was good to him yeah. early in his career... Uh, he wasn't like Roddy Piper, where Roddy Piper views every promoter as enemy number one. Where Harley's like, no, these promoters are, are good to me. I will be yeah. good to them. And that's how he sees his worldview. Hell yeah. And uh, was this where he fucked up his arm and got the plate in it? Was it this rack? Yep. I, on the RF video shoot, one of the best moments is when Harley holds his forearm up to the fucking screen and smacks it. And it sounds like he's hitting the trunk of a 600-year-old fucking oak tree. It's just... <laughs> and it's just thinking about him in matches and using that shit really makes you wince every time you watch a match. 
After the wreck, doctors told Harley that not only was his wrestling career over, he would never walk again. So Gus took Harley to a specialist who operated on his leg and arm, saving them both. Harley would go through brutal rehab, but he clawed his way back to the ring, having a handful of matches in 62, making a full return in 63. And for Harley's first match back, he made sure his doctor was in attendance to watch him wrestle. While driving Happy Humphrey that Harley was able to make connections in Nashville, Tennessee, and he began working there under the ring name Jack Long in 1963, forming a tag team with his brother literally from another mother, John Long. And man, that's such a common thing. You've got this guy who's super over, and then you're like, oh, this guy looks like that guy go ahead and be his brother. Right. <laughs> like that's and even like into the 80s and almost 90s they were they were doing that. That's how Ricky Steamboat got his name cuz he looked like Sam Steamboat in Florida. Mm. And then like every Anderson ever with the exception <laughs> right. of Gene, <laughs> even like Gene's stepson is not a real Anderson. <laughs> like his own son, not even not even an actual Anderson. Just you think of all of the people uh, even uh Johnny Rich, definitely not because they said that he was a cousin to Tommy Rich because oh, Tommy okay. Rich was so over in Georgia. Just the multitude of guys are like, oh, you look like that guy. <laughs> That's your new name now. That's your new name now because you look like that guy. Everybody's going in and out of territories like, oh, we just lost a steamboat. Well, you look like the last steamboat. <laughs> Bring it now up. I'm going to make my money with you. And guys are like, okay, all right, sure, fine. After a few months in Tennessee, Harley hopped back to the Central States Territory before landing in the Funks Amarillo, Texas Territory. He'd also returned to using his real name, Harley Race, after his father told him that he shouldn't work so hard to make someone else's name famous. And I never really considered this. Back in the day, they were like, if wrestling's real and your name is real <laughs> what who the fuck is sterling golden terry <laughs> <laughs> why 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 well the surname thing is a big issue in my family my uncle gives me a hard time just about every time i post on facebook because my <laughs> facebook has changed over to jake manning right. now i'm no longer using my real name on facebook where for a long time i used my real name but because of Comedians trying to get up with me for shows. They could finding yeah, Jake Fearbach yeah. is like a big, big to do. But like, as soon as I did that and my mother showed that to my father, it broke his heart. Because <laughs> my dad basically sits on Ancestry.com and looks at like family trees, like the lineage of our family back to like the 1800s or as far back as he can go. And in the fact that I have not produced him a son, me being the only son. <laughs> I could just picture him looking at Ancestry.com and looking like at a family tree, like in a branch that just oh. dies off and him like just oh. sighing in the middle of the night, realizing this son will never produce an heir to continue on his branch of the Fearbach family, and also to the fact that I'm Jake Manning. But don't worry, once I do something crazy because of all the massive head trauma that I have, they'll be thankful that I'm using <laughs> a surname. So there you go, Dad. Once I make the news, you'll be thankful. Yep. 1964 would be the year that Harley and Larry Henning formed a tag team and moved to American Wrestling Association. And in the AWA, handsome Harley Race and pretty boy Larry Henning quickly became top contenders in the tag team title scene. On January 31st, 1965, they beat Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher to win the AWA Tag Team Championship. 
there's no footage of this that I could find. There's pictures, but I did as much digging as I could and all my deep nook and cranny internet stuff. I, I couldn't find any footage of this stuff. Oh, I probably got some eight millimeter footage somewhere lying around. I might be able to <laughs> dig up somewhere. That'd be cool. They'd hold the belts for most of 65 and 66, trading them for short times with Vern Gagne and the Crusher, as well as Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher. Vern was their main rival and attempted to dethrone Larry and Harley with various partners like Ernie Ladd, Danny Hodge, and Wilbur Snyder, who has a good story about a boat. Sorry. <laughs> I don't even... What is that? Someone named Wilbur Snyder probably has a good story about a boat. I feel like anyone named Wilbur has oh. a good story. You did, you did let's, a... let's fucking get into our favorite segment of the show, where I say you put some goddamn oh, no. respect on Wilbur Snyder's name. One of the better fucking shooters of all time and most respected grappler of the entire Midwest era. Ha ha ha, Nick's on the receiving end of this shit I don't this like time. it. I don't like how it feels. I don't want it. <laughs> uh, you were doing the Wilbur. I was like, is he doing a Mr. Ed reference? What the fuck's going on? No, I he, he was a mean motor scooter, <laughs> as they would say. Like, don't you dare besmirch the name of Wilbur Schneider. And just to get some uh, Harley shoot interview opinions on there, he, he thought Vern was the nicest guy, but when it came to promotions or business, he's the absolute shits, even as back <laughs> as the early 60s. And I don't know the exact date, but I heard uh, one match that really pushed Harley to worldwide fame and really got his name out there was there was a Loser Leaves Town match with him and Vern in the late 60s that really propelled Harley way up to the top. January 67, Harley and Larry got their titles back for a third and final time, beating Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher once again. They go on another tear through the AWA until Larry got legit hurt when a ref fell into Larry's leg, basically chop-blocking him and blowing out his knee that October. Vern Gagne would do an angle where he broke Henning's leg. And the AWA did an angle where they let Harley keep the belts and choose a new tag partner. Harley chose Chris Markoff, which Harley said their pairing was good, but just not as good as him and Larry Henning. Harley and Markoff would lose their first title defense in November to Pat O'Connor and Wilbur Snyder, who has strong opinions about saltwater taffy. (laughs) I like that one a lot more. That was good. Just just you wait till the fucking ghost of Wilbur Snyder comes up and fucking stretches her ass. You'll put some fucking respect on his goddamn name. For the next several months, Race teamed with hard-boiled Haggerty and would do a good bit of singles matches, uh, even getting some shots at Vern Gagne's AWA title. By early 68, Larry returned, and although they'd start tagging up again, they'd never have another run with the belts. Harley would finish up 68, working with AWA, staying out of the title scene before leaving the company to begin his historic run as a singles competitor in the National Wrestling Alliance. I think it was this point he had the car wreck? Uh, it was It was around this point. It was just, I uh, listened to different people talking about it. I was like, okay, there was a car wreck here, and then there was a car wreck here, and then there was a boat wreck, and then there was another car, and it just all Jesus fucking Christ. like bleeds together. <laughs> and it's like, how the fuck is Harley alive? We'll get into that more, but uh, it's somewhere around here where Harley had uh, dangerous car wreck number two. And then he was like, I told that motherfucker, <laughs> am I going to lose a leg or not? And when he said no, I was like, good (laughs) as terry funk said he never left in time but always got there on time 
Same can be said about Jake Manning. And people <laughs> complain all the time, like, oh, Jake is always getting speeding tickets. I'm like, well, you guys never complain when you guys show up late and we get there on time. So <laughs> Harley would kick off his NWA run in January of 69 in NWA Hollywood, which he soon left because he hated the traffic. You are preaching to the choir, Harley. Oh, um, let's, all, let's all cry for the guy in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> but in the 60s. <laughs> The 60s, where a lot of people didn't have cars. <laughs> Good point. Like, it was bad then. It was poorly designed <laughs> then. And it's just like throughout time, every, nothing changes. People are shitty drivers forever and ever. Also, too, like the Hollywood territory was very star-based. Like, if you didn't have a big star that was getting over at the time, the territory took like a big dip but if they had like somebody in there who was drawing a lot of money it was a really good territory to be in i don't really know who was like big names in piper had a pretty good run yeah. fred blassie had some good runs i think john tolis even was big at the time i know that definitely i think one of the guys out there the big thing that was a big draw like in those california areas were like the battle royals Right. So spectacle. It, yeah, if you're if it's about the time for the and I think they did that like once a year, like they did a big battle royal and have Andre the Giant out there, or they have some bigger names. I, usually, when it's getting close to battle royal time, that was usually when they made a lot of money. So it's a weird territory, and I would like to read more about it, but there's not a lot about it. But I think because yeah. of those infrequencies of ups and downs and around, Piper is the only one that really kind of comes to mind. Like Piper. And Chavo Guerrero hmm. is the only thing that's very noteworthy of that entire territory. After leaving Hollywood, Harley would do the usual territory traveling, but his home base seemed to mostly be in Amarillo with the Funks. Harley would spend late 69 making his first trip to Japan to work for the Japan Wrestling Alliance. There, he'd work against young wrestlers before they came to legends they're known as today, Antonio Noki and Giant Baba. I thought one of the most interesting things that Harley talked about on that was he was one of the first Americans that would actually sell and bump his ass off for the young Japanese wrestlers because at the time, most of the other American wrestlers would just kind of go in there and take it as a holiday and not really put the time in. And Harley got a lot of heat for it, but he was the one to actually start putting those young guys over, which started all the love and respect that uh, Japan had for Harley. Which is weird because th that always seems to happen in different places at different times, like Jimmy Valiant, when he went down to Memphis for the first time, when it was like Johnny and Jimmy Valiant, and they were wrestling Bill Dundee and Jerry Lawler, and Johnny Valiant was like, I'm fucking bumping for these little motherfuckers. Fuck them. <laughs> but Jimmy was like, no, I'm going to bump for him. Bumped around for him, and turns out those are the two guys that were booking the territory. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> and Jimmy Valiant always had a job in Memphis whenever the fuck he wanted it. And Johnny Valiant, I don't know if he ever wrestled in Memphis ever again. He's so, just hanging out in the room with his pride, jerking off, not doing anything. And surprisingly, <laughs> Harley's bumping around for Anoki and Baba and all the young boys and the guys that are coming up and the guys they're going to work for and Saruta and everybody else. And they're like, oh yeah, I want to work with that guy. But the guys that don't bump around, I don't want to work with. Yeah. It, it's, it's weird how that there's that mentality well i have to protect myself and guess what by protecting myself i have now rustled my way out of a job yeah pride doesn't always mean intellect not pride stupidity let's not put it let's not give these people I, credit there's a lot okay okay let's give these people stupid pride bleeds into that whole fucking line all right cool <laughs> In 1970, Harley would buy into the NWA itself, getting a part of the Kansas City Territory. Was that territory ever good? Because Harley ultimately lost money on the territory. And then I heard George South talk about Kansas City, and he hated it. Never hear good things about it. Well, when George went there, it was 
after it already tanked that first time when Bob Geigel had it. Yeah. And as Bob Geigel like was pretty much kind of running it. Like like Harley was like a name that was attached to it. Uh, I highly doubt he was doing the work that a lot of the day to day work. I think Bob Geigel had a lot of the day to day work. And if you hear stories about Bob Geigel, like especially I think when he was NWA president, like he would just show up in shower shoes and <laughs> just kind of kind of lazy and laid back and never really wanted to put in the work. And I think there might have been a couple other people involved in the Kansas City territory. And it was a smaller territory. I mean, it's running a lot of the smaller shows and spot towns. It, and, and keep in mind, it's very close to like McGurk and Bill Watts's territory, so they're they're not they don't have a wide reach. So you know, Kansas City is probably like little towns in Iowa and in most of Missouri, maybe a few Nebraska and towns out there. So it, it's very in the middle of nowhere, Midwest, small farming communities. Not a lot of money there. It's not like running a Chicago, yeah. like like. Watts, you know, they have the big towns like New Orleans. There's a lot of money there. World Class has Dallas. There's a lot of money there. AWA has Chicago, Minneapolis. Georgia has Atlanta. Uh, obviously, the Mid-Atlantic Territory, they've got, you know, the, your Richmonds, your Charlottes, your Raleigh's. You get you get big towns that kind of prop it up. Even Memphis has Nashville and Memphis, where, like, Kansas City, you just basically kind of just have Kansas City because St. <laughs> Louis is its own little thing, so you're not really a part of that. So you're kind of like you don't have like a big metropolitan area to kind of prop it up and tent pull the whole territory. So that's why it's probably a little bit tougher to manage. That's my opinion on it. Obviously, this is when Hulk Hogan started devising his evil plan to take down Kansas City, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> Nick didn't want to bring that shit up. Over the next three-ish years, Harley would tear through the territories, mostly hanging out in Texas and central states. He'd get his hands on some regional titles without getting a lot of love from the national spotlight. But Harley's life and career would change forever in 1973. So a version of this story goes, the NWA wanted to put the title on Jack Briscoe. However, champion Dory Funk Jr. may or may not have not wanted to drop the belt to Jack for reasons ranging from not wanting to lose to another babyface to beef going back to the Funk's territory. So what may or may not have happened was days before Dory was supposed to drop the belt to Jack, he was possibly involved in a truck accident on his farm that put him out of action. The NWA, now realizing that the title change was going to be a whole thing, decided to put the belt on a transitional champion and in-stepped Harley Race. It was not just Harley's professionalism that got him this title shot. It was his reputation of being a bad man, as the NWA used Harley as their own Richard Iceman Kalinske to make damn sure the belt was going to be traded smoothly. Wow, what I that reference nick every wrestling podcast needs a 90s hbo true crime documentary <laughs> reference and also too with harley that that's a easy choice if we're gonna believe that dory funk intentionally <laughs> didn't want to drop it to jack briscoe because of heat there harley's the most logical person because harley's got a good relationship with the funks because of the time he spent in the amarillo territory previously also too with harley running kansas city he's kind of in the brethren of the nwa also, too, with Kansas City's proximity to St. Louis, which is the territory run by Sam Munchnik, and Sam Munchnik was basically like whatever he said at the NWA board meetings, people stood up and listened. He had such respect amongst the board members, and Sam had a tremendous amount of respect for Harley. Also, two people that were on Harley's side, Fritz von Erich and Eddie Graham. Fritz probably 
loved Harley a considerable amount. And obviously years later, he loved Harley for everything that Harley did for his kids. And his kids were going into St. Louis. I don't know if they were coming in at this particular time. This is probably a little bit before the kids were wrestling. But I'm sure Harley had plenty of matches with Fritz over the years as well. So there's a tremendous amount of respect. So you say also because he's a bad motherfucker, but I I think that's underplaying how much respect he had amongst the board members. So if they're like, well, we really want it on Jack. Dory's not going to do the honors. We need to put somebody here in the middle. And Harley just makes the most sense. You know, consider him an interim champion and just kind of a guy that passed it along. But I think a lot of them felt like, no, no, we could see him as a champion someday. Maybe not here right now. Let's put him on and see what happens. I think I think that it kind of downplays what, what they had. I, I think they, they felt like, especially probably Sam, I, I would imagine Sam Munchnik was, was like, no, I could see Harley Race as, as a real world champion. And I think a lot of people stood up and listened to that when Sam Munchnik said Theoretically, if you said it. I wasn't in the meetings. I wasn't in NWA <laughs> board meetings in 1973. I know I look old enough to be yeah, so, but... say something, but I'm, I'm back. I'm just, I'm just saying, I got, I, got a, I got a feeling that probably Sam Melchink was the guy. Considering the way that Harley was always booked in St. Louis and the amount of respect that Sam had, I think Sam was kind of the key to kind of push, push that through. And considering... Harley's time in Amarillo before this, I don't think the Funks were going to budge on that at all. Like, yeah, yeah, Harley's a good guy. We, we could, I got no problem dropping it to him. And also, too, the Funks probably didn't see Harley as that big of a threat right, yeah. at the time. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, yeah, he's a good guy. He deserves it. But, yeah, why not? We'll always be the Funks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they still were, but yeah. No matter what side of the story you want to believe, Harley met Dory Funk Jr. May 24th, 1973 for the NWA Heavyweight Championship. At the end of the match, Dory was arguing with a ref after what he perceived as a slow count. Harley hops up, surprises Dory with a kick, some elbows, hit him with a suplex, and ended Dory's nearly five-year title run. And just to give you an idea of just the evolution of wrestling, and I mean, it's the context is there, and it, at the time, it was fucking worthy of a finish, but two out of three falls match, and one of the biggest wins of Harley's career, and he beats Dory with a common suplex. Nowadays, people probably look at it and think, just a suplex? Because I was kind of surprised, but I mean, it just shows how much wrestling has evolved. It applies to every art form. It's just the context at the time, what was normal, what was big, what was the new kind of, oh shit, move. The suplex made sense, but it just shows how much the evolution of wrestling has come for. Now, like I said, Harley was supposed to only be a transitional champion holding the belt for a couple of weeks, but he did such a great job, he was given a couple of months with it. He was able to defend it in central states, the Funks territory, Crockett, before heading down to Paul Bosch's Houston territory that July to face Jack Briscoe. Which is actually where Dory was supposed to drop it originally, mm. and just showing the respect and the working relationship the NWA had at the time, having a title switch in your territory is a big deal. Because then that lets people know that anytime that a NWA world title match is booked in my territory, in my arena, you might see a title change. So Who make knows? sure you yep. fork over that money to go see it. Yeah. So Paul Bosch being screwed over and not getting that title switch is a big deal. It's a lot of money. So the, the NWA, like, well, Jack was supposed to win it on this date against Dory. Well, we will rebook it again and make sure that it happens in your territory, Paul, because you are a part of this alliance. So it just shows how respect and how they honor that. And it's just good to see that, like, at the end of the day, Paul Bosch got an NWA title switch in Houston with Jack Briscoe. 
And also to defend Dory on people that might have thought he was full of shit, Dory never had a reputation of pulling out or being hard to work with or be like, I don't want to drop the belt to him, blah, blah, blah. I think this was like one of the only matches he's ever pulled out of in his career. So, Oh, I, uh, we've had some difficulties working with Dory Funk <laughs> Jr. at HighSpots.com, so I would disagree with that. Hey, just because Dory wants a good fucking, you know, mocha and you can't get it to him on time doesn't mean that, you know, he refuses to drop the belt every time. Before the match with Jack Briscoe, the NWA revealed a brand new belt, making Harley the last person to hold the Lou Thez era belt and technically the first person to hold the new NWA title, which is probably the NWA title most people picture in their head when you say NWA. It's like with the rectangle plates and the, all the country's flags on it. Yeah. During the match, Harley took the first fall before he caught Jack in the figure four, but the third and final fall was won by Jack Briscoe, ending Harley's first run with the belt. Harley talked about how losing the belt lit a big fire under his ass because he knew that he had what it took to be at that level, and it really he had so much motivation to get back to that level after that short taste that it really just got him going. Although Harley's first run was short, since he had handled the entire situation as a professional and with class, it allowed Harley to stay on everyone's radar, gain great name recognition, which would lead to future title shots. After dropping the belt, Harley went back to Japan to work with the newish All Japan promotion, mostly facing Giant Baba in a series of tag matches with various partners. Harley would return to the States and go on an absolute fucking tear, running through the territory, snatching up almost every belt in sight, including eight Central States heavyweight championships, seven Missouri heavyweight championships, a Georgia heavyweight championship, a Stampede North American championship that's in Canada for people who don't know, Japan-based NWA United National Heavyweight and PWF World Heavyweight Championship, and he was the first holder of the Mid-Atlantic United States Championship, which still is defended as the WWE U.S. Championship to this day. And that Missouri belt that he won was usually the precursor to the NWA title. If you were being groomed to be the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, they would put the Missouri title on you because it's the St. Louis, it's basically the St. Louis Territory's main belt, feature belt, and St. Louis had really great TV, Sam Muchnick ran it, and if you did well for Sam and Drew in the Checker Dome and, and in his territory, you were seen as possibly the next guy for the NWA World title. Like Ted DiBiase has won it. I think a lot of the Von Eriks, like anybody that was ever in discussion, they would give them a run with the Missouri title, see how they would work. Because if you could do well on St. Louis's TV, then they're like, okay, well, you're going to do well on Mid-Atlantic's TV, Georgia's TV, and everybody else in the entire alliance. St. Louis was kind of like the proving ground for the next NWA world title. And if you see a lot of the old Missouri title holders, they were eventual NWA world title holders or guys that were in the discussion. Definitely a who's who of badasses throughout wrestling history. All that led to February 6, 1977, when Harley Race would meet NWA champion Terry Funk in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I found a clip of most of this match, and it's really fun, uh, good back and forth. But the ref, why did refs back in the day count like a one? I'ma hit it again. Two, I'ma hit it again. <laughs> Three, and like they counted so bad <laughs> because they're probably like old fucks that are like <laughs> they got brittle bones nick because there might be a state athletic commission where like no you have to use 
are official referees. Like there was like a really shitty ref in Chicago that they always had to use. There's some shitty ones in the New York territory. Like you look at some of the old Madison Square Garden footage, you're like there's some really fucking bad refs because you had to <laughs> fucking use them because they're like brother worked for the athletic commission yeah. and they just were fucking awful like just fucking horrendous so like that's just one of those things that somebody might have been grandfathered in and because like they're like well this guy has to referee the world title match because he is the head official here in the toronto area because we have have an athletic commission so you ran into that a lot in certain places not everybody's a tommy young that's why someone like a tommy young stood out during this time because like oh a good referee thank fucking god yeah i will agree that watching this the drama of the three count or just refing is very important just like i guess just watch it in ring of honor and it's heyday and the rest which is the big dramatic kind of yeah. circle like you see the whole rotation of the drama of the three count i guess if you want to say and then like just the all japan stuff where the refs would count and then they would stop on the three count and it would propel their entire body up into the air to stop the fucking momentum. Like, I mean, it did remind me, it's like, man, some of these three counts could have been a whole lot fucking better. Hug your local ref. Hug your local <laughs> ref. <laughs> for this match, uh, Harley would eventually start working Terry Funk's leg before locking Terry in the most painful hold in pro wrestling, the dreaded Indian death lot, causing Terry to tap, gaining Harley his second NWA world's championship this clip has caused probably one of the biggest debates in my entire life what the fuck and my biggest contention uh i i love and i respect harley race this is let, a disclaimer let, before let, let, let me say this <laughs> right up front and let me explain what where we are today so he locked in harley races version of the indian death lock which is he locks it in very similar the way Paul Jones does, but instead of falling straight back, so you're in a line with the wrestlers, like you know, you're parallel, parallel. Yeah. Uh, he's more perpendicular, like making an intersection and then pushing his foot against the guy's knee, so he's more off to the side, right? Which I don't think is a sturdy enough lock into the Indian Death Lock, but he did that and he called it the Indian Death Lock, and then Triple H saw that and started using the Indian Deathlock like Harley. And then they would mention it on commentary, it's the Indian Deathlock. When in actuality, Paul Jones' Indian Deathlock was a little bit different because he's parallel with the guy. And anybody that's ever been locked in that particular version of the Indian Deathlock know it's a little bit more of, like, it is for sure a fucking Deathlock. Yeah. Like, I've had guys try and roll roll it onto me, like, you know, you do the the figure four spot where the guy reverses right. you can't fucking do that because <laughs> yeah. you'll die <laughs> hence death lock okay it's really and, attacking like your kneecap or what's it no no, no. It's, 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 it, there's there's you're hooking it with your toe yeah where like with harley's you're kind of more like you you've pinched it in from the side but all the pressure from the move is going where on the opponent exactly it's just right on the knee just yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah and it, you're, you're kind of just making like a figure four but more of a pushing of the four it's a little bit sharper of a v with a bend in the leg yeah. th than anything and then you're you're locked in where like harley's harley's more to the side with it and and that's all fine and well it's definitely a variation but when people <laughs> are locking in the harley race version of the indian death lock and they're saying like oh this is a tribute to paul jones i'm like no motherfucker that is not how it's done and then everybody thinking that's the only way to do the indian death lock like i'll put the indian death lock in 
the way Paul Jones does it, and people are like, what fuck? What, what fucking move was that? How that fuck? Like, like I don't understand what that was. Was that a messed up figure four? Like, no, that's the fucking Indian Deathlock. And then people are like, well, actually, the Indian Deathlock is like this because it's so Harley Race did it. No, 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 no. This is why I feel like Paul Jones Indian Deathlock is superior because Paul Jones got it from a guy, uh, I believe, like a, like a WWF, I think, job guy who was. I think was an actual Native American, but he might have been an Italian guy playing a Native American. Regardless, possible. that makes it more legitimate. <laughs> and he he got it from him, who was the guy who invented. It. I think it might have like Billy White Eagle or something like that. <laughs> Fuck. Billy Billy White Eagle gave it to Paul Jones, and Paul Jones got it because he had a feud with Wahoo. Oh, okay. And then George South got it from Paul Jones because Paul Jones is his wrestler, and then taught it to me. And Paul Jones was doing the Indian Deathlock, his version of it, before Harley did it here. So uh, I'm sure what happened is Harley heard about Paul Jones having an Indian Deathlock. And you don't have YouTube, so you can't look it up. Didn't have tapes or DVDs to pass around to figure out how to do a move. He probably just heard somebody like, yeah, when Paul did it, he kind of did this. And I don't remember what happened after that. And then Harley just kind of freestyled the end of it. And that's what we got. What we got. And so when I see... There, there are two different versions of the Indian Deathlock. There, there is not. Everybody thinks that there is one, but there's actually two, and very <laughs> few people know the actual original version of the Indian Deathlock. And I, I've researched this with Dick Bourne, who runs the Mid Atlantic Gateway, and we've discussed this in great detail. And we, we can definitely trace back before Harley Race was doing the Indian Deathlock, Paul Jones doing the Indian Deathlock. So actually, the true innovator was Paul Jones. So that's just... And for more on that, because I think we get into it in that episode, our Paul Jones episode, We, get, if you, for all your Indian Deathlock needs, go back and listen to our Paul Jones episode. If we want to cut that on our Harley Race episode, because <laughs> it, it is very direct, but that is truly the difference, and I will scream it on top of a mountain yeah. to the day I die. Just a slight criticism. It's, it's, it's good It's not healthy. a criticism. It's a criticism of other people. Harley Race can do whatever fucking hole he wants. <laughs> Let it. Let's be clear. He can oh, do whatever. You're basically, holds. a cop trying to give Harley a speeding ticket right now. No, no, shit, no, no just no. do whatever you want. I told that <laughs> motherfucker I invented my own version of the Indian Deathlock. <laughs> All respect due to Paul Jones, but I have my own because I'm the greatest wrestler on God's green earth. Once Harley had the belt again, he punched the time clock and basically never clocked out. This is the legend of Harley Race that you hear going town to town, making all the locals look great while still keeping the belt. He'd defend it more or less every single day of the week. And remember, this isn't a 12-minute match on Raw. These are one-hour broadways, which I say as a compliment to Harley Race because he's great and he did work his ass off. But sometimes I get annoyed with these old-timers who are like, we went an hour every night, daddy. But it's like, yeah, but 47 minutes of it was the same headlock from 46 minutes ago. Well, you yeah, guess what? The audience was fucking riveted yeah. the entire fucking time because they cared about that belt and they cared about those two competitors that they either hated or fucking loved. And every inch of that headlock meant something. It was fucking exciting. And you're building to the last 20 minutes. Right? They're a little bit more upbeat and, and fast paced. Like if you see a lot of those hour broadways, they do, they do, they do start off. They, <laughs> okay, they I, kinda, I, I agree. They start there. But once you get into it and kind of the flow, it's like watching a football game. Do you really give a fuck about the first quarter? It gets a little exciting there. 
uh, right as you're going into halftime, the last two minutes, then the third quarter is whatever. And then all of a sudden, when you get into the fourth quarter, like the way that we view a football game is the about the flow of a one hour Broadway. <laughs> And uh, I want I want Jake to talk on this. The thing that I think Shane Douglas brought this up that Harley's traveling all these different territories, hooking up with their main inventor, and he's doing sixty minute draws with these people. But in today's age, you probably know every the move set of Caleb Connolly more than he does or Zane, and you know how to deal with that. But Harley's going to these territories, doing sixty minute Broadways with dudes he's never fucking seen anything about, and he's just working with it and making them look good just on the fly, just with being who he is. Wrestling was different then. Yeah. There was a small set of moves that everybody should know. Like I saw the hour Broadway that Harley had with Jerry Lawler. Yeah, yeah. And Jerry Lawler was doing things that I've never seen Jerry Lawler ever do. <laughs> yeah. Like he was doing leg drops, yeah, it was which weird. he should never do leg drops. <laughs> Sorry, Jerry. I love you. You're not a leg drop guy. It looked dangerous. I was like, oh, God. Fucking Harley Race called leg drop. Motherfucker, you doing leg drop. <laughs> he did the best he could and not to hurt him. So it's one of those things where... Harley's calling stuff that these guys should know because you got a list of 30 to 50 moves that everybody should know. Right. And sometimes he's even finding out like he'll call a move and the guy fucks it up or it looks like shit. And Harley's like, yes, we're not doing that. Again. <laughs> like it just, he'll just make a decision and then he'll just tell a story a different way or stick with what's working or he'll just find something. Yeah. He did that with a lot of people like, okay, well this is working and this is working and we can do this and we can do this just out there. He'll, he'll, he'll figure it out. He'll call a move to a guy. The move looks good and it's working. We're going to come back to it. We're going to tell a story with that. And then there's other times where he's got an entire hour of Broadway already laid out. Like there's a great story of, I think him and Jack or him and Dory Jr. One night, Harley just walked into the locker room, walked over to Dory and was like, are we doing the Kansas City Broadway or are we doing the Houston Broadway? Yeah. But, then, but then he named like two other ones too. They had yeah. like four Broadways they could do. It's just like a headline in comic. Yeah. It's just, they have a different hour to shop out and, and it just depends on whatever audience. So it's basically like Jerry Seinfeld. Like Jerry Seinfeld's got his younger kid headlining set or he's got his older audience or his corporate gig. It's, it's very similar to that. But Nick is totally on point. You go back and watch the older Harley matches, you have to know what you're in store for. There are wars of attrition. They, Like I said, every inch matters, every hold, and every little small advantage matters because when you don't see the NWA champ in your city and you finally get to see him, and every time the person you want to win gets a slight advantage, you're losing your shit. And people are going bonkers over this stuff. And if you're going in there expecting a, a constant back and forth and high spots and then a rousing, uh, you know, 10-minute finishing sequence, you're not going to get it. But when you put it in the proper context, this shit's fucking good. And the audience reactions and to see how much hold they have over the audience back then is what makes the matches so interesting and good. But Nick is Nick is spot on. I watched so many fucking headlock exchanges. <laughs> the, 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 the best one, Harley's opponent hasn't been a headlock. Harley's on his back. Harley kind of rolls the guy eventually onto their back, and then they bridge up and then slam Harley back down to the mat. I marked out like a motherfucker on that. It's the little, the small little spots that you don't see these days that they were really good at back then. And the one thing that was also interesting, just learning about Broadway's and traveling around, going to the territories, is that according to Harley, 
before him, the NWA champion came in and would kind of destroy the territory main eventer and make him look like shit. But what, Harley wanted to put them over and put the belt over because he said the NWA belt was there to make opponents for it. And that's what drew up more business. That's what made a lot of money. And that's what got him going. So when you do a 60-minute Broadway, Harley doesn't lose. The other guy doesn't lose. And they both look like they're tough as fuck. When you say previous NWA champions, are you saying Dory Funk Jr.? Bad for business? I'm just saying, back to the conspiracy. There was no truck accident. It was staged. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was all staged. It was all staged. Who cut the brakes on the truck? Huh? 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 But yeah, also back to your point, another thing that Harley did very well, and as a guy who's had to wrestle people that are, are less than, and that's it's putting it nicely, <laughs> is Harley would have spots that he could basically do with a broomstick. And certain cells, like, you know, if a guy just knew how to throw a punch, Harley could spill out through the ropes and end up upside yeah, down so and do this flip here or fall down. If the guy just, just breathed on him a certain <laughs> yeah. way, Harley could do these things that just make the guy look good. And the guy just has to just be in the vicinity of Harley racing and he'll make you look good. Much like Flair later on had spots that he could do. But Harley was really kind of probably the first NWA champion to have a repertoire like that. Like, okay, well, here's a set of things for you to do to me where I will be so over the top in how I put it over. And to go on that point, just uh, we're going to get into this since we're talking about it. Did you guys get into the George Goulas, Nick Goulas thing? Jake, do you know about that? Nick Goulas was the big promoter, and it was one of Goulas? the most... Goulas? yeah. You're saying goulash. Hey, uh, Nick Goulas <laughs> and George Goulas. They were from Poland. Yeah. Um, but apparently, um, was it George was basically one of the biggest examples of nepotism in the history oh, of George wrestling. Goul- George Goulas is awful. He's <laughs> yeah. fucking horrendous. They teamed him with Bob Eaton, and even that tag team suffered with Bob Eaton, one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time, could not drag George Goulas up to a fucking baseline of professional wrestler. <laughs> That's the the story that I found when I dug deep in. And that uh, so George Goulas, Goulas, I, I don't even remember the proper way to say it now. He actually got an NWA title shot against Harley at the time, and it's either a thirty-seven minute DQ or forty-five minute Broadway or an hour Broadway. But Harley made George look so fucking good that Nick, his dad, lost his absolute shit in the back. It's like you made my boy, you made my boy, and so I mean, apparently one of the biggest uh, examples of just how fucking good Harley was and could make people look good was George Goulas. It's like that that's it. You made George look good, you're you're the you're, you're the goat. <laughs> One quick good story of Harley and Abdullah the Butcher in Japan. They ended up brawling out into the streets. The crowd follows Abdullah and Harley brawling into the streets. Like, seven or eight taxi cabs have to stop in the middle of the street. The crowd wants to watch the match so much, they get on top of the taxi cabs to watch Abby and Harley brawl in the middle of the Tokyo streets, and they end up crushing, like, four or five taxi cabs. It sounded like one of those stories that was embellished as shit, but just the visual of it and the idea of it made me smile. So, there's Abby and Harley being King Kong versus Godzilla. Well, I've been in car accidents before (laughs) with my car. Maybe I'll get in a car accident without a car. Ooh. Also, during this massive tear through wrestling history, on October 13th, 1978, Harley Race body slammed Andre the Giant, and then just because he felt like it, he did it again January 7th of 79. The newspaper shot of the one in 78 is really fucking gorgeous because Harley talks about in the RF video how he pretty much like gorilla pressed him. It's not quite that, but he, he got his ass up there. 
and then he slams him on the concrete floor in the rematch. He he gets good rotation on all of them. Well, it's also during a time where Andre's a bit more nimble. Yeah. So Andre can kind of assist a little bit more. Also, too, Andre and Harley were good friends because Harley, being the NWA champion, he can rent better cars than most people. So when he would fly to the territory, (laughs) he would rent a big Cadillac. And obviously, Andre needs a big car to ride in. So Harley's like, well, Andre, why don't you just hop in a car with me? I got a big old car. All these other guys in the territory are driving around in these gas-saving cars <laughs> that are tiny. Yeah, so just hop in with me. We'll do the whole loop together since we're doing the whole loop and probably just drinking beers left and right and going down the road. Those two probably got along pretty well. And probably Harley's like, what if I slammed you? <laughs> and, and Andre's probably drunk enough to be like, yeah, sure. That's something great. Let's do that tomorrow. And then they get in the ring, and then Andre's like, oh, no. And then Harley's like, Slam, <laughs> and Andre's like, oh, okay. Because what are you gonna do to Harley Race? Even though you're Andre the Giant, yeah. Like, you want to try? Even do you want to try? Even Jim Ross said when Harley was around, Harley was the boss. You said he body slammed him, but did you mention the suplex? Yeah, Flair said something about the suplex. Yeah, he said uh, I think it, it was the '78 match because it's not in the '79. That he said he suplexed him and held him up. But I, I, Harley said it too. Uh, Flair's word, I'm not taking too much, but uh, Harley seems like a pretty stand-up dude, so I'll, I'll buy that he's sup- the only man to hold suplex vertical Andre. When it was all said and done, Harley Race would hold the NWA title for almost five years, barring some very short trade-offs with Tommy Rich, Dusty Rhodes, and Giant Baba. By the end of his run, Harley was a six-time world champion. The whole story goes that Giant Baba had a you know a, a paper bag with twenty five thousand dollars and is like let me have that NWA belt and then it turns out Giant Baba basically also did that with Jack Briscoe during his run and had a five day run and then Baba did the twenty five grand and seventy nine to Harley and then they switched about six days later and then in eighty they did it again for about three or four days so Baba did the twenty five grand deal probably about three times they're fun matches it's it's. This is going to sound like I'm shitting on him, but it's just because I haven't watched enough. But when Giant Baba w- could fucking wrestle, man, he was good. And the the matches around here is when Baba could still move. And he's doing Russian leg sweeps and headlock takeovers. And, man, the headlock takeover is one thing you got to bring up with Harley. Because he would do this great, like, poetic, balletic little float over that was almost like a cartwheel every time. That, as Jake said, making his opponent look good, Harley would just look like, whoa, what the fuck was that? So, yeah, Baba worked that uh, that money deal more than just the one time. And the NWA was mostly cool with it. I think the NWA knew any time that their champion went over to Japan that, like, something like this would probably happen. Mm-hmm. They're just like, just make sure you come back with the belt. Because <laughs> also, like, this is during the 70s and early 80s. And even in the 90s, people viewed whatever happened in Japan as something that's non-existent before the internet, before anything yeah. else. Like, whatever happens over there doesn't matter doesn't even really count so it's even surprising that even is even put in the history because there were a lot of title switches that happened in new zealand and australia and puerto rico that are just not recognized whatsoever but they're just as much validity as the this japan switches but because baba was kind of a part of the nwa alliance and was putting a lot of money in a lot of their wrestlers pockets and was going through the office and and booking their champions so they were getting a booking fee but of course you know, the 25000 was going right to Harley. So it was almost like a, a bonus for, for the champion that the NWA didn't have to shill out. So they're like, 
that's what made him probably cool with it. Like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's this, <laughs> this is another bonus that we can give our champion. And another reason why we can trust our champion is because we're allowing him to make this. It's a very high spot thought process. I'm allowing <laughs> you to make this bonus and not raising his stink. So you be thankful to me. Yeah. So it's one of those things. That's your perk to not bitch about when I fuck you over later. Yeah, or, or <laughs> yeah. when I ask you for money for this. Right. So Also during this time, real quick, you just got to touch on the Harley Race versus Jumbo Saruta matches, late 70s. They're, uh, they're one January 20th, 1978 matches, considered one of Harley's best, but there's only 30 minutes on YouTube. It's a two out of three falls match. It went 60-minute draw, but there's not much... I could find it. It's good shit. Uh, at the end of the first fall, Harley chugs an entire beer in the ring, and then it's it's clipped after that. But uh, yeah, the jumbo Harley stuff's good stuff. And you know, all these other like small switches with with Tommy Rich and Dusty is probably very similar to a situation of like, let's give it a shot and see if we can pop this territory or or get things going or add some credibility. Like Tommy Rich winning the NWA World Title in Georgia, and he was the hottest thing going in Georgia, yeah, biggest baby face, and. You couldn't get any hotter than Tommy Rich in Georgia at that time. And you get to that level, like, where is there to go? So you're, you as the local promoters trying to do so much with Tommy Rich, and it's getting to a point like, I don't know what else we can do with him. And it helps that Jim Barnett, who was the promoter there at the time, and also with the NWA, it was just kind of a perfect storm of shit to work out. Yeah, and, and once he's won it, then from then on, in that area, you can say former NWA world heavyweight title holder, Tommy Rich. And that's where if he's just kind of at that level of this big over guy, but now he's reached the mountaintop and now he's here. But then also, too, guys can end up beating Tommy or going over on Tommy. And then that makes them and elevates them, too. And then Harley has somebody to wrestle when he's back in the territory. I think the only time the NWA title was ever ever changed hands on a DQ was when Harley got it back from Dusty, where they had the whole top rope DQ thing, but the DQ rule was waived so you could lose the belt on a DQ. Yeah. So there was a whole thing where Dusty got his arm busted up by Terry Funk, but then apparently Dusty's ego was too big to lay down the belt, so... He couldn't even be a one-armed man losing to him, so they just did this DQ rule bullshit. And apparently at the time, like, even Bill After uh, Magazines didn't even say what the actual finish was because everybody was so fucking embarrassed for it. I, I guess it's just like the fiend Seth Rollins type shit, but for back in the early 80s, it sounded like a huge fucking just disaster. Lots of smart marks were pissed. And Harley would, like, make these guys in these territories, getting the hour broadways that we discussed multiple times and multiple different people, but... The match he had with David Von Erich yes. on St. Louis television, which was actually like a weird handicap match where like Fritz would come <laughs> yeah. in. But Fritz never enters the match. He never enters the match. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 it's been a while since I've seen it. it. Yeah. It's it's top five, one of my favorite matches of all time. Just the put over job that Harley Race does on television. Yeah. Of all things, he gets juice from the Iron Claw. Oh, it's such a good spot. And, and it's such a good just spot. the way that he makes David Von Erich on St. Louis television. And, and I said the importance of St. Louis television, the fact that he's making this star out of David Von Erich. Like all this discussion that you see in all these documentaries, these world-class documentaries about David Von Erich, he could have been a world champion, all this discussion. It all stems yep. from basically Harley Race doing this on television and, and having other subsequent matches with him. But this one in particular was a star-making match and event there on television for free. Yeah, And, and that's... <laughs> the strength and what Harley Race did did for people. He would make opponents. And 
really kind of one of the first NWA champions to recognize that we need to make opponents and I need to come back and make these opponents. And it, it was kind of a formula that Flair capitalized on. But the person that was the trailblazer in that was Harley Race. I watched this match about two days ago, and Jake is 100% on from however long he watched it. It's it's hot as shit. And the claw spot where Harley goes for the diving headbutt, David catches him in it. And then he just he, he he holds it so long where Harley starts juicing and you you can see Harley do the little neck, but he does it so fucking good it's almost imperceptible. And oh my god, the selling of it of Harley covered in blood after the claw and everyone cheering. Oh my, fu- it, it's fucking goosebumps. It's great TV. And and Harley took being NWA World Heavyweight Champion as like a job and come into every territory and make his opponents and make everybody look good. But much like in all of our jobs. We like to goof around and have a good time. And sometimes Harley would find humor in some of the more odder things. And this story, which I heard directly from Tony Atlas, is a perfect example of it. As we know, Tony Atlas was uh, known as Mr. USA because he won the Mr. USA bodybuilding competition. And shortly after Tony won that competition, he had some pictures made up of him on stage at the Mr. USA competition. And he was going to sell them at his gimmick table. And he had the pictures, and he was in the locker room in Georgia Championship Wrestling, and he was showing all the guys, like, hey, took all these pictures of me winning the Mr. USA competition, and they're really nice pictures of him in his posing trunks and his number on everything with the big trophy and all that stuff. And Ole walked in and saw this, and Ole knew that Harley Race was coming into the territory, and they they had some NWA title matches set up. So Ole, right at the top of his head, like, oh, this guy just won Mr. USA. Tony's capable performer, and I think even at this time he's wrestled Harley a couple of times. This makes sense. So what Ole said was, he goes, Tony, I want you to wear the same exact trunks that you're wearing in these pictures when you wrestle Harley Race in the Omni next week. And Tony's like, um, well, these are bodybuilding posing trunks. They don't really give you the support in the areas you need support in uh, when you're wrestling. And then Ole looked right at him and said, listen, if they're good enough to be worn on the stage in New York, they're good enough for you to wear in the main event in the Omni in Atlanta. Tony's like, all right. And I think they were like kind of like a fuchsia type color, and they were very cut, very high. They were kind of risque, like a little, 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 a little more like uh, gay strip club-esque than actual wrestling trunks. So anyways, Tony has them on. And before the match happens, obviously meets with, with with Harley, and then Harley takes a look at the trunks, and he's just like, <laughs> <laughs> and it just kind of laughs at him, and and Tony's like, oh, this is what Ole wants. He wants this. He said, if they're if they're good enough for a stage in New York, they're good enough for the main event in the Omni. And uh, I was like, okay. So they get out in there and they're wrestling, and I think they're gonna do like a like a Broadway or whatever. And um, they're getting out there and they're wrestling, and about like twenty minutes in, Tony's keeping. His dick Somehow. is supported as possible, some way as possible. And, and, but, but Tony's talking about it. It's so funny listening to Tony Alice tell the story. And then Harley Race goes, backdrop me. And Tony's like, oh, oh no. <laughs> oh, and so he whips Harley off. And Harley, if you've ever seen him take backdrops before, it's a little different than Flair. Harley will boost 
a really high on the on the lower back and get his head up uh, to show more of his face as he's getting flipped over as opposed to going up and high. Like he doesn't take a very high backdrop, gotcha. but he takes a very animated backdrop. He well, really sells it too. Yeah. yeah, and you can see his face and his terror as he's going over. That's as opposed to creating a bunch of height and making it look spectacular that way. Well, he's posting very very high on the on the on the lower back, but for whatever reason, he slides his hands down into Tony's trunks. So when Tony backdrops Harley, as Harley goes over, he grabs a hold of these posing trunks. Oh no! And as he's falling down, gravity ends up pulling the trunks down. Ah. <laughs> uh. And as as you may or may not know, most of the guys that wear trunks don't wear anything underneath. Hence why wearing posing trunks is such a scary situation <laughs> because- you, My dick you, is so close. Yeah. But where you have a little more support with wrestling trunks, but posing trunks, you don't have that at all. So Harley grabs a hole and Tony Atlas basically has backdropped himself out of his trunks <laughs> and then stumbles out and they come completely off his ankles and off of his feet. Now Harley has- Wow. Tony's posing trunks in his hand. Wrestling's real. It's a fight. Harley Race takes the trunks, wads them up, and throws them into the crowd. <laughs> oh, no. And as Tony Atlas said in telling of the story, he goes, naked in the middle of the army with my dick hanging out. <laughs> and the thing is, too, once again, but wrestling's real. Real fight. You're not going to stop. So Harley goes back to calling spots with a butt naked Tony Atlas. <laughs> I don't know. In a real fight, if I'm butt naked, I probably just run away. <laughs> and, well, and it was another ten minutes before somebody came from the back. Somebody got into Tony's bag, got another pair of like wrestling trunks, brought it out to the ring, and then gave him some trunks and he put them on to finish the hour of Broadway. So for a good chunk of an hour of Broadway at the Omnia in Atlanta, Harley Race wrestled up naked. Tony Atlas, African-American gentleman in the middle of the South. <laughs> so heard that story directly from Tony Atlas. So if you ever see Tony Atlas at a show, I highly recommend that you ask him about that story. <laughs> Listening to Tony Atlas tell it, it's fucking priceless. Speaking of Tony Atlas, one quick urban legend I heard was at one point Tony was maybe going to get the NWA belt, but he had to sell out the Omni against Harley and he didn't sell it out and Harley hung on to the belt it, it's most likely bullshit but I, I like the idea of just Tony just sitting there watching people like come on we need more and then they're just like shit 20 short he did everything he could he, put, <laughs> he whipped his dick out and everything he did everything he could to sell out that building Harley's title run finally came to an end in Georgia Championship Wrestling July 21st 1981 when he passed the torch to the American Dream Dusty Rhodes he's got a bicycle Dusty Rhodes eventually lost the title to up-and-coming star Ric Flair, which led to Harley Race beating Flair in St. Louis in 1983 for his seventh reign as champion. Harley next would begin the climb to one of the biggest shows the NWA had ever done, the WrestleMania before there was a WrestleMania, Starcade 83, and that's where we'll pick up on part two of the great Harley race with Harley taking on Ric Flair in a match that would end in murder. Oh, shit. Director's <laughs> cut shit. I doesn't even know about it. What version are you watching <laughs> on the WWE Network? I'm trying to make sure people li listen to part two. I mean, they're going to listen. I'd like to, <laughs> there's plenty of Jake Manning personal stories with Harley race where he almost murdered me. Oh, oh, there, yeah, you there, go. We go. So. there we go. There we go. All right, so that is part one on Harley Race. Thanks for listening to Tim Bell Pod. Please leave us a rating and a review wherever you're listening. That just helps us out. 
head over to patreon.com slash 10 bell pod if you want to give us some united states currency find us on social media at 10 bell pod i'm nicolessa on all the social medias micah's j trotter 27 on twitter and the man scout Oof. is at man scout manning on all the social medias part two coming up murder yeah. <laughs> hi it's the undertaker I just want to remind you, uh, you know, uh, head over to patreon.com slash Pod so that uh, you can donate to the podcast if you enjoyed this episode. Um, rest in peace, guys.